Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Welcome along. Thank you for coming. Uh, we have invited back Frederick Starr, an extraordinary man who spoke to us recently about Central Asia and about our policies there. Now we're going to talk to him about another passion of his. His passions are many and they're really all absorbing. He's an educator, a linguist, an historian, uh, the advisor to presidents. But today we're going to talk to him about jazz and some other things. My co-host and the producer of this program, Linda Gasparello, is along to get us started. Hi, Fred, welcome back to the show again. You know, We've hardly ever had a guest who has the kind of background that you have. This time we're going to talk about your musicianship and we're going to talk about your restoration of a house in New Orleans that was built in 1826. Uh, and everybody's interested in restoration these days. So maybe we'll start off with how you came about to restore this 1826 house in New Orleans. Well, my goodness, it, it, it's a long story. It began when I was growing up in, in Cincinnati, actually. And as you recall, there was the Eisenhower's famous uh, uh, highway program, which, which in the case of many uh, of the old and pretty old cities like Cincinnati, the federal highway system clobbered it. It, it just tore hell through the, through the oldest and most historic parts of the city where, for example, Stephen Foster worked in his brother's factory uh, office and so forth. And frankly, I was at the time in my late teens and it really, really hit me hard. Uh, I felt that the, not only did the federal government destroy what I'd grown up loving and, and considering my private property and bicycle and motorbike and so on. But more than that, they, they, they really uh, uh, did so without any objection from the local elite. And, and these were the parents of people I'd grown up with and I, I was so disgusted. And I heard a little while later that in New Orleans, there was a project to build a, a, a highway through the French Quarter and the locals were linking arms to stop it, which eventually they did. I vowed then and there at about age 18 that I would, uh, I would uh, switch my loyalties, which I did. <laughs> That's how, now, it, once in New Orleans, I spent a lot of time when I had, uh, had it, which wasn't much, uh, walking around with a great old local architect and historian, Sam Wilson. And Wilson was an old guy who, who had examined all the French archives on the city, terribly knowledgeable, very nice man, very pious man, I should say. And he, he took me one day walking down, down from the city, a mile and a half from the French Quarter in what we now call Bywater. But, uh, and, and there behind a cinder block bar, quite invisible, was a beautiful old house from the early early 19th century in the pure West, uh, West Indian Creole style. And uh, I vowed at the time, my God, I'd lo love, to, love to live there. My father, who, uh, to whom I mentioned this, said, said you've got to be nuts because the biggest, biggest uh, entrepot for drugs was on the corner right behind the house. 
<laughs> anyway, I bought, I eventually bought it for nothing. And, and it took me another nine years before I could buy the front yard and wreck the cinder block biker's bar. Crazy, eh? Was it hard to get the artisans to help you restore the house? And also, were there archival materials that you could use to restore the house with? Really good questions. The, the archival materials, yes, there were some very useful ones. Uh, in the bad old days of, of Spanish and French rule in Louisiana, if you sold a horse even, you had to get it notarized. And if it was physical property, you had to hire someone to paint a picture of it for you and to make a very precise plan. So I have these from the notarial archives. As to people, when I, when I started, my objective was very modest, simply to make it livable. But as I, I'd spent many years doing archeological work in Turkey and archeology span was and is in my blood. It's a great career that I wish I'd been, had another life to pursue. I started doing archeological work. And we found all the original walks and pavements. And then we, then we had to find the, how big were the gutters? The gutters were gone. That was all that was gone. By the way, poverty and the people who lived there for the last century lived in poverty. It preserves, whereas wealth destroys. But one of the things that was lost were the gutters. And I didn't know how big the original gutters were. So we excavated along the side of the house and after eight days of absolute, it was like working in an oven, we finally found one hand forged iron gutter hook. And so we knew exactly how the gut, big the gutters were and we had them reproduced. Now, did we, could we find artisans? Yes because this was started 30 years ago, my work. 30 years ago, there were still wonderful old artisans. They were white, they were black, they were Creoles of color, they were Hispanic, but these were the real, the real thing. They passed on their skills from father to son. I couldn't do this today. The skills aren't there, you know. But yes, they were there back then. Um, Fred, you have another love besides your house in New Orleans, which you still live in, or you still have it and live oh, in yes. it sometime. Oh, my oh wonderful. And uh, uh, it's been worth it. Do people come by trying to buy it for huge sums of money? No, no, they, they, they we just live very quietly there. I have many, many local friends and they convene for nice sessions at our house and and it's probably one of the best places on the planet to drink wine and beer on the, watching the ships go by on the mississippi sessions brings up another interest of yours and that is jazz an interest of yours it means and of yours and you're a jazz clarinetist and you founded quite a famous jazz group which has toured the world tell us all please well i i i'm a clarinetist i'm a bad pianist uh, but I started playing clarinet as a kid, and and uh, I w I love classical music. I mean, and and my world turns on on Schubert and to and and Haydn and Dvorak. Uh, this is this is this is. These you are... might see Linda smiling there because so does hers. Ah uh, well, I uh, the. 
On the other hand, although I've played a lot of classical music and chamber music over the years, I, I'm not that good. I mean, my dear friend Joe Robinson, who played 27 years as the principal oboist in the New York Philharmonic, uh, you know, I know what the real thing is. And, and I knew that I wasn't going to be on that level. And, and, but on the other hand, growing up, I, I heard a lot of jazz and all the river towns, Cincinnati is a river town, all the steamboats were based there, by the way, not in New Orleans. And I heard a lot of jazz and, and we were far enough behind times that I grew up playing in a style that was already 20 years out of date. <laughs> I was sort of a dinosaur. But um, this, I was able to play on some of the last river boats that went up and down the river. That took me first to New Orleans. And, and then later, uh, since I'd vowed that I was going to, at age 18 or 20, I'd vowed to, that I'd make my home in New Orleans. I, much later, I had the opportunity to be vice president of Tulane. And in that period, I found a banjo player whom I'd met in New Orleans at age 18, uh, John Chaff, uh, uh, just a glorious musician. Uh, we played a concert once in San Francisco and, and uh, uh, Isaac Stern from San, San Francisco, the great violinist was sitting in the front row after the concert. Stern came up and I heard him. I was not facing them. I heard him say to John Chaff, our banjo player, he said, if you played the violin, I wouldn't have a job. And, and uh, so Chaff and then John Joyce, who is among the most knowledgeable and, and sensitive musicologists I've ever met. Well, so we had three guys who wanted to start a band, and, uh, but we had all realized that over the years, especially 30s, 40s, 50s, classic New Orleans jazz had become a tourist commodity. It was, it was, and in the process, it was, this was done largely by people not from the city who'd come there and, and founded a sort of jazz spots. Well, New Orleans never had jazz spots. It had dance halls and the music was for dancing. It was, it was like, like minuets in the 18th century. And, and we wanted to peel away the commercialism that started very early and which by the 60s and 70s and 80s had totally stolen the music and made it more primitive. Whereas we wanted to rediscover these classic performances by the great bands of the teens and 20s. And these were bands, some of them were white, black, Creoles of colors, Hispanic. They were everyone, but they all shared a common language. And we wanted to recapture that language. And so we looked around the city to find people who were sympathetic to the first-class musicians. One of our first discoveries was, was a wonderful trombone player, Fred Lonzo, who's still with the band, uh, a glorious friend, uh, trombonist and friend. Another was, was, was Walter Payton, uh, whose son, Nicholas, started with our band. He's now a world-famous modern, modern jazz musician. And, and, we, and we put together a wonderful group, all dedicated. Immediately, we started playing just one night a week at a, a bar in New York, New Orleans. Uh, and, 
and this was very nice. It was packed every week, and pretty soon we were in a, a, a Swedish television, then Japanese television filmed us, then we were invited to France, and from then on, the band's been rolling along ever since. And, uh, Fred, how did you go about researching the music? Did you use old sheet music or old recorded performances? Who, were, who was the keeper of, of the music from that pre-1930s period? The key here is that even though people keep, kept playing what they called New Orleans jazz, it evolved just as classical music does. I mean, the orchestra of today is nothing like the sound of the orchestra, say, as late as, as 1910, when, when, when great works of Stravinsky and so on were being performed. So our task was to strip away the later cover layers of paint. And we used various techniques. One was, of course, uh, the early recording. Now, you can't just listen to them. You've got to really go in deep. And a second, and by the way, we've just in the last few months have, have done a film and recording of all the works of, of, of Sam Morgan, one of the totally forgotten bands of the late 20s, totally forgotten and gloriously uh, elemental music. Um, that we, to get there, to capture their style, John Joyce spent a couple of years analyzing their few extant recordings. And there were big surprises. Now, beyond that, yes, music. Uh, a lot more music. These were all literate musicians. The idea of the primitive New Orleans musician is largely a uh, tourist propaganda. These were literate. It was, this was the expectation, whoever you were, and so they used printed music, and but they also wrote their own scores. And we were lucky to get our whole hands on a lot of music uh, of the of, uh, the original bands, and and used them. Beyond that, there is another dimension that we used, and that is uh, talking with oldsters. Now, I don't mean the old musicians. We met all of them who were still alive and, and we exhumed a number of them from obscurity. But I mean also the dancers. And I, I'll tell you a, a very quick true story. One night we were playing music uh, 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 on radio. We did a weekly radio broadcast then. Uh, music of Armand J. Piron's orchestra. Great band of the 20s. And they continued into the 40s and 50s. And the next morning, I got a phone call from an elderly lady who was the daughter of a distinguished Jewish judge in the, in the town. And I knew her, and she called me, said, Fred, it was so nice to hear the music of Mr. Piron last night, and, and especially New Orleans Wiggle. That was one of the, his big, his signature tunes. And I was just swelling with pride as I heard this. And then, and then she said, of course you played it too fast. I, I said, really? Well, he did record it. We played it at that speed. But she, I challenged her and she said, well, come over tomorrow for tea. I went for tea the next day in this big house she lived in. Uh, uh, she asked, I asked her finally how, I said, you're a very well-educated woman, I realized, but how about the tempo? How do you know that? And she said, you know, can you dance a one step? I said, yeah, my, my wife's a ballerina and a dancer. 
and, and uh, so we got up on the carpet and she probably 85 or so and a very tall erect dignified lady and I as she hummed it, hummed it faster and slower faster and slower and finally she said that's the tempo well we went back the next night and I asked our drummer John Joyce to kick off that piece New Orleans Wiggle a little slower than we usually did it was right it felt right it sounded right so so yes we had those informants as well finally I have to say the original instruments sound different I play an Albert system clarinet which became extinct by the end of the 20s um, the drum big bass drum not one of these uh, little ones that the rock drummers use uh, the, the trumpets are, are, are cornets uh, for the main par part, and th those are much smaller sound, a smaller, more sweeter sound. So it's, all the instruments sound different, too. My grandfather played a cornet in the British Army, but none of his musical prowess uh, was uh, handed down to me. Uh, what is the relationship, Fred, between classical music and jazz. And I think of Wynton Marsalis as being an exemplar of someone who was at the very, is at the very top of both of those. Although nowadays he seems to be almost entirely doing jazz. Let me give a, an example rather than philosophize in general. And that is the figure of Shostakovich. Um, Shostakovich was, we know who he was, great musician. Coming up in the 19, late 20s and early 30s, he heard jazz recordings. He played uh, a, a piano to the accompany silent films. Uh, he knew that world. And, and he saw early, early uh, printed music too. And in his early compositions through the, through about 32 or so, uh, all, uh, many of them have a real jazz feeling. And as it happened many years later, in the 60s, in 67, to be exact, I happened to meet him at a private dinner party in St. Petersburg, then Leningrad. And I asked him about, what is the relationship between you and jazz? And he was a very dour guy and, and, and had sat there throughout the entire dinner up to that point without saying a word and sort of scowling at the universe. And when I asked that question, he just lit up. And he said, you know, I really, I really was interested in jazz. I, I wrote a few things in which I incorporated elements of it, but then I had to stop. Of course he had to stop. And he could never go back. He said, I greatly regret that. So, so it's not either or. These were all people who were the musically literate, and that meant playing the band music of the day, which was itself adapted from Italian operas and, and so on. There was no sharp line. Linda? Right, I'd like to go back to the idea of these pre-1930s bands as having been dance bands. And if you look, as I've looked through your recordings and, and the uh, Louisiana Repertory Jazz Ensemble has a number of excellent recordings, you look at the titles of the songs and they're the shout, the stomp, the strut, the hop. Tell us about the band leaders and, and about that dance origin. Well, let, let, me, let me 
broaden, broaden the issue even more. And that is, go back and listen to those glorious uh, minuets and serenades and so on that were written by Mozart and his contemporaries. A lot of that was, that was music that was danced. You know, it wasn't some abstraction. A, a mazurka was a mazurka, you know, and everyone knew what a mazurka was, a wonderful dance. It really has brio and character. So, so the idea that, you know, we've become so sophisticated that we revere the musician and we think that we are his or her humble disciples. Whereas in reality, for much of history, music served dancers. It, the music and the dancers know what they want. I mean, playing, we, we played for years for dancers, real dancers in New Orleans. And because it was a dance crazy city, people, it's the only place in North America where people danced on Sunday. Um, we played for years for dancers and dancers know what they want. If you do break up the piece with flashy breaks, you know, show off, and every instrumentalist likes to do this, the dancers will pause, they'll look at you and ask, what the world are you doing? They, they, they know the beat. And, you know, there are bands playing early jazz all over the world, but hardly a one of them has ever played for dancers. The fact is, dancing, dancers shape the music, not the other way around. When the dances change, the music changed. Linda? Who were Fred the band leaders, to get back to that question, who knew the dancers and played for those dancers? Ah, they, they were all guys. You know, they, some of them were full-time professionals. Some of them did it in much of their spare time. But they were a surprisingly sophisticated lot. There were guys, there were people like like uh, Sam Morgan, whom I mentioned, who, who played in very, very rough places with Bogalusa across, across the lake. It was a rich uh, lumber town back in the, in the 20s. And he, he played in such a rough place that they, that, they, that they had to put chicken wire in front of the band to protect them from flying band bombs. But most of the leaders were quite, quite sophisticated. I mean, Joe Oliver, uh, 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 black, Cornet player, great, great distinction. Uh, he was he he would go and meet with the patron of a particular dance, and he he'd show up and you know in an elegant jacket and tie and and looking very shipshape, and they would negotiate the price and the time and so on, and shake hands and have tea, and that was that. They all were used to this. I mean, people like Armand J. Piron. Creole of color, very, very sophisticated guy. He, he didn't march with the bands that marched because he had a bad leg But he play, and played the violin. He was noted for being a very, very uh, gracious negotiator and, and, and a, a very good band leader. So they, they tended to be, many of them kept up of side professions. Many of them did not. Uh, the ones who stayed, and that's a special group that, see, after 1917, when the five members of the original Dixieland Jazz Band went, were asked to go to Chicago and then on to New York, where they recorded and were a sensational hit. From that point on, 
bands that wanted to make money left. But the dancers continued. And our big discovery of recent years is to focus on the music of the bands that never left. This is, this is almost like, you know, how they now and again find the a skull of a, a Peking man or some, some side species of, of human being and we all get excited. Well, we've been focusing on other species of early jazz that have been totally forgotten. The, the dance music of those who stayed home. Um, friend, there's something interesting about you, and that is there's a strong um, strain of restorer in you. You restore houses, you somewhat restore this music, and you restored the reputation of Central Asia as an intellectual center before the Renaissance in, in, in Europe. Uh, does that ever occur to you that you go around restoring things that it may be that you actually think all the best has been invented. No, no, I, I, I don't think that at all. But what I do think, it, what it has always intrigued me from a very young age is, is time, the passage of time. And I, I think, you know, in our arrogance, we think we're the center of the universe and that, and that our moment of time is, is, is absolutely unique and, and wonderful. Well, I have been fortunate uh, so far in my life to be able to explore other unique and wonderful moments in time of creativity. Uh, and, and I think understanding the sources of creativity in any period is the key to the future. And, and I would say this about creativity, and one of the things I've observed is that some of the most creative eras of human achievement are unrelated to prosperity, are unrelated to peace and happiness and difficult times. You know, uh, young Schubert uh, grew, I mean, Haydn was sitting in Vienna when, when, when Napoleon's troops bombarded the place. Uh, young Schubert grew up in a Vienna where where the cops were were closing down a social club that he and some of his friends had. Uh, creativity does not depend on wealth, does not depend on peace, it does not depend on comfort. It arises from totally different sources, and I think I think it's valuable not just for our moment, but for the future, to realize that. Uh, we're coming towards the end of our time, so I'd like to ask you, Fred, what is your idea of a perfect night out? Playing music and having a great feast with family and friends. That's quite wonderful. You are quite wonderful. We are honored that you've come on our broadcast. Absolutely delighted to have heard you. And that is our show for today. Remember, you don't have to wear a tie to enjoy anything, but I do. I don't know why, really. Uh, have a great week. We'll be back. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.